This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. The Dublin branch of Nafina Air and Boy Scouts was founded by Countess Markievicz in 1909, based on the original Belfast branch, which had been founded by Bulmer Hobson in 1902. It was a nationalist organisation and prepared young men for armed struggle in the name of Irish independence. When the Irish Volunteers was formed, it had close ties with Nafina, which provided officers in many cases. Patrick Houlihan was a member and was a participant in one of their most notable early acts, the Hoth gun running. Along with members of the Citizen Army and the Volunteers, the boys of Nafina Aaron were among the ranks that marched to Hoth in July 1914. In documents read here by his son, he recalled, The enthusiasm of the men at having re-rivals in their hands instead of dummies knew no bounds and bystanders echoed their enthusiasm. I remember well as we passed a stationary tram, seeing a priest blessing our ranks and shouting at the top of his voice, God bless you. The whole operation was carried out with precision and efficiency, without a trace of fuss or confusion. We had forgotten our weariness from our outward march and no one thought anything of the march home or of the opposition we might meet. They did indeed meet opposition, as police were rushed out to kill Barrack on special trams. On sight of the police, you could almost feel the wave of determination sweeping over the ranks of newly armed men. Not a word was spoken, not a pace was shortened, but one could notice a stiffening of muscles as each man took a tighter, firmer grip of his rifle. The police, realising their powerlessness, offered no opposition, but simply fell in and marched alongside. This tense escort continued until they reached the bottom of the Hoth Road at Marino. We were confronted by a detachment of the Scottish borders who were immediately joined by the police who had escorted us from Kilbarrick. Our column was brought to a halt and the Assistant Commissioner of Police, Harrell, demanded the surrender of the rifles. Several senior officers drew their revolvers and some of the men asked to have the ammunition from the Trek car distributed. The moment was tense, but a clash was avoided for while a volunteer officer kept the Assistant Commissioner of Police talking, the volunteers retired back up Hope Road and by crossing the fields, Some got back into the city and then dumped their rifles at Croydon Park, the HQ of the Citizen Army, or in adjacent houses. The Fina retired to Mrs. Redden's house in Artane, where their arms were safely stored. This important event, as well as their participation in O'Donovan Ross's funeral the following year, prepared the young men of Nafina Aaron to take part in the Easter Rising in 1916. One of the first acts of the rebellion was the raid on the magazine fort in the Phoenix Park, which began under the guise of an innocent kickabout. On reaching the park, we started to kick football and, according to plan, worked closer to the main gate of the fort as the game progressed. At last the ball was put through the gate and one of our party approached for permission to get the ball. When he gained admission and got near the sentry, he held him up. The remainder of the party lost no time in getting inside. The remaining sentries had still to be dealt with. One, instead of putting down his rifle when called upon to do so, presented his rifle to the firing position. One shot was fired and he was wounded and held prisoner with the other soldiers in the guardroom. We then started to execute our plan to destroy the fort, entering the different stores, laying our explosives, setting the fuses alight, locking the door and throwing the keys back into the stores. The men in charge of the prisoners had, in the meantime, collected all the arms and ammunition in the guardroom. By some accident, we did not enter the high explosive store. Perhaps it was fortunate for us, as we would never have been able to get out of the place in time, but it spoiled the plan to blow up the fort, although it saved our lives. 
The rising was now underway and Houlihan was attached to C Company, 2nd Battalion. They were posted on North Brunswick Street among the fierce fighting that centred around the forecourts. On hearing the heavy firing I have mentioned, we redoubled our efforts to make our positions as strong as possible. During this day of feverish activity, the few showers which fell were hardly noticed. Later the sun was kind and came out, but when the darkness fell, with all the streets and house lights out, there was a complete blackout, during which the nerves of everybody were at their tensest, awaiting the expected attack. Prowling about the dark, deserted rooms, imagination exaggerated things. I entered one room and was startled to see an armed man confronting me, where I did not expect to see anyone. I immediately challenged and, receiving no reply, fired. The crash of breaking glass brought me to my senses. I had fired at my own reflection in a wardrobe mirror. Houlihan's writing reveals the grim confusion of the week. Attacks being mounted at night, nobody sure what to do or where the next attack would come from. An armoured car arrived in the middle of one night and began an assault on the houses of North King Street. One soldier, endeavouring to club in a door with the butt end of his rifle, killed his comrade when the rifle went off. From the occupied houses, the British maintained a heavy fire on Langdon's barricade, and it was soon realised that daylight would make it untenable. It was pitch dark, and the only guide to a target was the flash of a rifle. A scream or a groan announced when a bullet had reached its mark. The attacking British clambered to the rooftops, and from this vantage rained down bombs on the street until the answering bullets made their ruse untenable. As the week drew to an end, the most desperate fighting took place. At Church Street, British soldiers closed in, although the volunteers held their ground from the strongholds. A young soldier was hit and fell into the street. The volunteers shouted that they would cease fire to allow him to be removed. The sergeant major in charge, to the accompaniment of much bad language, refused, but changed his mind later. A few minutes later, the same sergeant was hit himself and also fell into the street. On Saturday afternoon, rumours came of the surrender, and a tense truce was observed until Sunday morning, when Pierce's handwritten surrender order was delivered. Patrick Houlihan, just 19, was interned in Frongoch. On his return, he continued his association with Nafina, reorganising the movement and also joining the volunteers in the War of Independence. Patrick Houlihan's witness statement was read here by his son, Sean Houlihan. I asked Sean what his memories were of his father and what stories his father told him of this period. The only one I remember of him telling us that he never realised Hope Pier was so long when he had to run down it with the bugle for the bringing in of the, the Asgard. And uh, that was one of the stories he did tell. And uh, he didn't he didn't talk, talk much more really, like, you know what I mean? It was my mother talked more about it than, than he did. He he kept he kept very quiet about it, but um, I, 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 uh, I mean, to this day, uh, he, he dictates my standards. I mean, and that, that's amazing. It even amazes me that, I mean, up to the age of 10, that he had that influence on me. And, and it's still very present for me. Very present for me. And I'm, I'm 80 now. Like, you know. <laughs> uh, so it, it, when I think about it, I, sort of, I, I try to wonder, what was it about the man? I suppose my lasting memory of him was a very kind, understanding man who who had always encouraged you to be yourself, who always respected you, and even in where he might disagree with you, he'd always explain. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. He wouldn't actually enforce things. He would get you to understand why he wanted you to do things. And he had very. Uh, I mean, the lasting memory is the high ideals he had. He loved Ireland. He would do anything for Ireland. And also, uh, in his job, he 
he always said, uh, thing worth doing is worth doing well. And, and he put his greatest effort into that. And the other thing was that has lasted me, and the reason I don't drink still, is one of his favourite maxims was, your word is your bond. And if you give your word, come hell or high water, you must you must live by it, you know. And uh, that's why I still don't drink. <laughs> because at the age of 17 or something, I gave my word, and, and I couldn't get, get out of it, like, you know. Uh, because of him, because I admired him tremendously. No, he was he was he was some man actually, yeah, amazing actually. For other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, visit www.storiesfrom1916.com. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>